welcome to another episode of CyberTalks. I'm your host, Dailo Mirali, and today we're exploring an important and sensitive topic that resonates deeply with many people in the digital space. Non-consensual intimate image distribution. What does this mean? Put simply, this is when a nude or sexually explicit image is shared online without consent. To talk about this, I have with me today Aida Mahmutovic from the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Valdrin Ukshini from the Kosovar Institute for Policy, Research and Development. They were among the co-authors of the recently published book, Online Actions, Offline Harms, Case Studies on Gender and Cybersecurity in the Western Balkans. A warm welcome to both of you, Aida and Valdrin. Hello, Lilo. Thank you for having us and really looking forward to uh, this important conversation. Hello, Lilo. Thanks for having us. Aida, let me start with you. Your research has emphasized the importance of refraining from labeling non-consensual intimate image distribution as revenge porn, which is quite a common shorthand phrase. Could you explain to our listeners, what's the difference between these two terms and why is this distinction important in practice? Uh, thank you for this uh, question, to be the first question uh, for the conversation. So since we've published our research, I actually always start the conversation on this topic by saying that I hope at least one person in the room will stop using the term revenge porn and then just pass the reasoning forward uh, to others. And here is why. Uh, revenge basically implies a harm done to someone as a punishment for something the other person uh, has done first. There is simply nothing to revenge for when it comes to one's intimacy and one's privacy. And, you know, it is okay to feel hurt over a breakup and people are allowed to feel jealous, to fear, to have these different kind of emotions in any kind of a relationship um, however, none of these reasons present an excuse uh, for revenge. And secondly, uh, private material is simply not pornographic. It's private. Um, it is not meant for public consumption, nor it is intended to, um, you know, mass sexual excitement. So therefore, no one is allowed simply to just photograph or video record uh, sexually explicit private content. Uh, of another person without their knowledge and permission and also disseminating such content is not allowed. Uh, therefore, I would say that um, the right term, the non-consensual intimate image distribution should simply be separated from the notion of revenge um, because that directly justifies the breach of one's privacy. So basically, we need to know that language matters, um, that terminology acts as a first agent of change uh, in the society, and then it creates this perception and consequently it affects uh, labeling situations and individuals, and then that influences legal framework um, as well. So these would be uh, the main reasons. Absolutely. Having conceptual clarity is important, especially when uh, the, the law is framed and the law is applied. So thank you, Aida, for shedding light on these complexities and nuances that we often don't think when it comes to uh, non-consensual in intimate image distribution. 
Valdrin, may I continue with you, please? Building on that, and again, helping us understand the key terminology, can you tell us what sets intimate image distribution apart from other forms of online gender-based violence? Uh, in today's uh, digital world, we have uh, different forms of uh, online gender-based violence, for example, like cyberbullying, cyber harassment, and other forms. However, uh, it should be emphasized that non-consensual intimate image distribution re represents a more complex and broader form of online violence. In many cases, uh, non-consensual intimate images has a multidimensional, wide-ranging impact on the relationship and well-being of the individuals affected. What makes non-consensual intimate images particularly concerning is that it involves the distribu distribution, so sharing of an intimate image or video, and they, by those, often compromising someone's privacy, dignity, and in a lot of cases, also the safety of the person that is involved in these uh, intimate images. This form of gender-based violence can have severe and long-lasting impacts on the victim's mental health, relationships with family, colleagues, partners, and overall well-being, and also the future of the victim. It's helpful you illustrate this uh, through examples and at more length in your chapter, obviously, but uh, absolutely, once these images are online, it's very hard to take them off. Um, Valdrin, why do you think there should be more, you obviously elaborated on this, but why do you think there should be more attention from policymakers or from other actors to this particular um, uh, online gender-based violence, while there are other forms of gender-based violence that are equally a priority issue? Of course, other uh, uh, forms of online harms and online violence are priority issues. But uh, just to delve a bit deeper into this when we are dealing with those cases, so there are several points to consider. I mean, I have three main points. It's the psychological impact the emotional and psychological effect on the individuals whose intimate images are shared without consent. consent. So that can lead to anxiety, depression, self-harm, post-traumatic stress disorder, and even suicide in extreme cases. Uh, the second point is stigmatization. So a lot of victims face are facing shame, humiliation, and social stigma due to the distribution of the private intimate image or video. They may also face judgment and blame from the society by considering them guilty for the event that happened. And the most importantly, the third point, legal implications. Problems start from the beginning, so from the reporting, through the investigation, and until the final judgment of the case, and in some cases, even after the, after the final verdict, so the final judgment, when the victim seeks compensation for the damages caused, all of this comes as a result of, the, of, a, of an lack of an adequate legal framework. And in many cases, the inadequate treatment of these issues by law enforcement agencies due to social and pat patriarchal norms legal frameworks lagging, beh lagging behind on when it comes uh, to addressing these kinds of violences online. And you have highlighted the some of the harms that could uh, victims or survivors could face. And victim blaming, obviously, is one of them. 
in you aside from you know analyzing the psychological impacts of these um, these acts Valjean you also touched upon the case studies and uh, the, um, the legal um, um, cases that have been addressed what actions can be taken at the state level by the police prosecution the judiciary as a whole uh, to enhance protection for these victims what did your study reveal uh, the first one is definitely uh, in order to protect the victims is to adopt a criminal offense specific to non-consensual intimate images. So the criminal code should be amended to criminalize various acts involving non-consensual intimate images and to facilitate the reporting, investigation and prosecution of those crimes. So in order to help the victims, you should punish the perpetrators. The second one would be trainings for police officers, officers and judges. They should be provided with specialized training to help them identify and handle cases involving non-consensual intimate images with a focus on legal and ethical considerations involved in investigating and prosecuting these cases. Also big problems are social and patriarchal norms. So there's some kind of patriarchal value systems to which a lot of prosecutors, judges and police officers, officers are socialized in Kosovo. So I think the best way to intervene against this is to impose strict protocols which provide guidance and steps that should be followed among all of rule of law institutions while dealing with these cases of non-consensual images. So these are like three points, main points, in order to protect and help the victims and in order to tackle those kind of crimes. If I may just thank Waldron for pointing these uh, things um, and from the research that we have done in Bosnia, uh, it is really interesting how when we talk to the you know this apparatus that should help victims uh, aka survivors uh, they always tell us how um, there should be more awareness raising um, in for women uh, but women know what's happening to them in this society uh, awareness raising and in trainings as Valdrin pointed out um, should be turned towards um, you know, the system that is supposed to help the victims, because when a woman, uh, it's usually a woman, when um, she comes to police, uh, they are the ones who do not know how to address this, firstly, with the appropriate language, and then uh, with the process itself. So um, what Baldrin said, I'd really like to second that. Thank you both, Aida and Baldrin. Um, yes, updating the legal frameworks and the legal instruments to um, address these crimes and consider them as crimes, but also building the capacity of the law enforcement to identify these cases and address them also is what um, Valdrin is mentioning. Um, very practical insights there, Valdrin. Thanks again. Aida, may I turn back to you? Uh, one case that you portray in the book demonstrates how the system alone cannot fully protect the victims. What does this mean? And please briefly outline the case um, and, and, and what can be learned from this case? Obviously, this is one case, but I think it represents uh, broader data. Uh, yes, the case is very complex, and I invite everyone to read. But in short, um, we call her E. Um, e is a woman who, at the time when she was recorded in a sexual intercourse without her knowledge, uh, she was a minor. Um, several years later, uh, after finding out about the recording, she really struggled um, with 
being powerless in terms of stopping the recording from being wildly shared uh, online and simply being alone because she was so scared uh, to tell anyone, family or friends included. Um, luckily for her, when her family found out, um, she actually received the support she needed uh, from love to psychological and legal support. And from some other cases, we see that usually this is not the case. So uh, we can say that he was lucky in, in, in that sense. Um, Actually, the case resulted, um, unlike other cases, in judgments uh, in her favor before the court against uh, the perpetrators who made and disseminated uh, her private content. So um, from E uh, point of view, uh, she thought that her nightmares were finally over. They ended with these judgments. Um, however, somehow she found herself in a situations that um, sh she thought they only continued and even amplified. Um, and why is this? So uh, it is important to know that while the judgment actually uh, punished the perpetrators in the what we call offline world, uh, the online sphere, uh, therefore social media where the dissemination happened and continued, uh, was not actually addressed uh, with the judgment itself. Um, when E and her family uh, reported these posts online, even uh, when they sent a judgment to, to Meta. Uh, in the, the post that continued, they clearly stated her full name, her address, where she lived, her private um, pictures, profile pictures stolen again from her social media. Uh, Meta found that does not uh, go against their community uh, standards. Um, so this clearly, more than anything, actually showed how the legal system, uh, even when working, uh, cannot succeed on its own. Uh, and what we learned from this case um, is that legal system has to work hand in hand with big social media platforms in order to help victims and survivors in full, even when we talk uh, about small countries such as Bosnia and Herzegovina or larger countries, uh, social media platforms should um, have the, the, the same standing uh, in, in such way. Thank you, Aida. Um, absolutely traumatizing case, but again, on the positive side, it has set the legal precedent to um, go after these cases also among public. But you, you highlighted receiving the support from the surrounding is essential. And I think that is indeed a first step when it comes to uh, um, bringing these uh, cases to the court. A lot to absorb and a lot to explore still later. We still have a, wrong, a long road ahead, obviously, as researchers, as civil society, as community, but to help um, provide protection to the to the victims, as you mentioned, the uh, giant social media as well. Um, in the previous episode, we talked about the underreporting of non-consensual intimate image distribution cases and the adoption of self-censorship as a self-protective measure. Aida, what would be your final message to the survivors of non-consensual intimate image distribution and the people around them? Um, I think my advice, uh, my message would be somehow threefold. Um, so to firstly, to whomever is listening to our conversation now, always remember that it is never your fault. No one has the right to interfere with your privacy, um, your intimacy, and your body is not and cannot be used as a tool for any kind of revenge. Um, 
then surround yourself with uh, people who truly support you and who trust you unconditionally and talk to them. And then lastly, um, what is important is that no one should feel shy from seeking professional psychological help. And um, then when and only when you are truly ready, when you feel ready, uh, make sure to use every legal remedy um, on your disposal. But yes, remember that it is never your fault. I completely agree with Aida, but uh, I, I just we had two interviews with two victims of uh, non-consensual intimate images, and uh, both of them back at that time decided not to report those cases to the police and uh, law enforcement agencies. But now, while we were while we were having the interviews, they they both said they regret they did they haven't done that. So I would like to give also a final message to the survivors. Uh, if you are a victim of non-consensual intimate image, you definitely should discuss this issue with, uh, for example, with psychologists at school or family members or friends or somebody who are close to them. But most importantly, they should report those cases to the police and uh, law enforcement agencies. Thank you, Valdrin. I think studies like yours, they do not only raise awareness among um, general public or inside um, politicians to take actions, but I think they also, as you mentioned, Valdrin, they also, they incentivize the victims to report these cases because once they understand that they're not alone in this, that they that they shouldn't fear that they can be they can find courage and that there will be a response to this. I think it is it is important to to pursue this. So um, importance of your study, again here, um, Valdrin, about the additional mechanisms that you know victims should have um, against these kinds of violences and the mitigation of these effects of these kinds of abuses. What should they be in addition to the mechanisms that are already in place? What else should be in place? I think we discussed, uh, I mean, something that should be done in order to help the victims, but I would like to add maybe two mechanisms or two two ways in order to help the victims and mitigate those, uh, those crimes. I would definitely say that the most important is like to establish with victim support services. So all victims of non-consensual intimate images abuse should have access to victim support services that provide emotional and psychological resources and help victims access legal aid. Because I think that's the main problem. They need psychological resources and in a lot of cases, they need help in order to access legal aid. Secondly would maybe be uh, public awareness campaigns. Also quite um, important to organize in order to educate the public, especially young people, about the dangers of non-consensual intimate images and the harm those acts can cause to the victims and should simultaneously aim to combat patriarchal, patriarchal norms. That's two main points. But the, the most important is definitely the victim support services. Thank you, Valdrin. Absolutely, the harm should be taken seriously. Thank you, Aida and Valdrin, for uh, thoughtful, thought, thoughtfully and empirically bringing attention to the complex and sensitive issues surrounding non-consensual intimate image distribution. 
You've covered this obviously at multiple levels, at state, policy, um, but the very real difficult impact that this has on individuals as well. A lot, uh, a lot to absorb and a lot still to address. Thanks again. Thank you, Lilo. Thank you to DCAF for uh, giving uh, the opportunity to work on these issues. I invite everyone to definitely read uh, the published book, Online Actions, Offline Harms. Thank you, Lilo. Thank you, DCAF team. It was a pleasure to be here and discuss this issue with you. Thanks. Likewise, and that's a wrap for this episode of CyberTalks. If you'd like to learn more about the work of our guests and the topics discussed in this episode, find the book Online Action, Offline Harms on DCAF website. We'll be back with more insightful discussions on cybersecurity. Until next time, you can catch our previous episodes on Spotify by searching for CyberTalks or for DCAF, the Geneva Center for Security Sector Governance. We hope you found this valuable.